Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'll be your host, Ewan Laidlaw, an equine vet based on the border between Scotland and England. And I'm delighted to say that we'll be joined by none other than Dr. Sue Dyson from Newmarket. Hello, Sue. Hi there. Sue, I'm sure, will be a well-known figure to many in the equine veterinary world, but by way of introduction, Sue is a Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons Specialist in Equine Orthopaedics, a European Specialist in Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation, and an Associate of the European College of Veterinary Diagnostic Imaging, and is extensively published in the field of equine lameness. Our topic for this episode is something which I personally struggle with, the low-grade lameness. And our paper, first published on EVE in 2018, is entitled Application of a Ridden Horse Ethogram to Video Recordings of 21 Horses Before and After Diagnostic Analgesia, looking at reduction in their behaviour scores. My first question, Sue, when when I I read this paper was, um, and I'm sure this will be the same for many, what, what, what is an ethogram? And how is it used in this context? An ethogram is a series of behaviours with definitions. We have developed a ridden horse ethogram based on assessment of non-lame and lame horses. We started with 117 different behaviours and by application of this to non-lame and lame horses, we were able to identify 24 behaviours which are 10 times more likely to be seen in lame horses versus non-lame horses. By application of this ethogram to lame horses and non-lame horses, we have shown that the demonstration of eight or more of these 24 behaviours is highly likely to be associated with the presence of musculoskeletal pain. Although a small proportion of lame horses score less than eight, the majority of non-lame horses have an average score of only two. So we believe this ethogram is a potentially powerful tool to differentiate between the presence or absence of musculoskeletal pain, even if you cannot see overt lameness. That, that's, that's grand. So could you just give us a couple of examples of the, the behavioural traits that you're talking about in the ethogram? Yes, certainly. Um, Some of them are timed episodes. So, for example, the ears being back behind the vertical position for at least five seconds or the mouth being open with exposure of the teeth for at least 10 seconds, whereas others are single episode events such as um, the horse being crooked moving on three tracks or the horse swishing its tail vigorously. Mm, excellent. Thank, thank you, Sue. And, and so in this article, what were you looking at specifically? Well, we wanted to ask the question, could untrained individuals utilise this ethogram? In the development phase, it had been applied by a trained person. So we needed to know whether or not it was reliably applied by people without any training. 
and if there were specific behaviours that people found more difficult to interpret. And we wanted to see whether or not these untrained individuals could differentiate just by application of the ethogram uh, lame horses versus non-lame horses. So we presented with video recordings of 21 horses, 21 horses which were lame and then after diagnostic analgesia had abolished their lameness. These horses were presented to the assessors in a random order. So in half the horses, the videos were seen first when the horses were lame, and in half the videos, the horses were presented first after diagnostic analgesia in order to try to minimise bias from the interpreters. These were all horses with low-grade lameness. The most frequent lameness grade was two out of eight. So that in itself, that degree of lameness would be difficult for a non-trained individual to be able to detect. That, that, that's, that's grand. So, um, so tell me, your article talked a bit about, uh, and you just touched on it there, um, bias. I, I know that if I nerve block a lame horse, or at least I try to, after the nerve block, I'm looking for it to improve. There's that expectation. And so what, what measures did you incorporate to, to try and reduce bias in this study? Well, the untrained assessors were told that they had video recordings of 42 horses, some of which were lame and some of which were non-lame. They were not told that there were 21 horses both before and after the nerve block. So we hope that this reduced the opportunity for bias. That, that's, that's great. And, and Sue, this is not my 40, but after you collected these observations, what, what statistics did you then perform on them? Well, we did two things. First of all, we looked to see whether the cutoff value of eight gave the best sensitivity and specificity for differentiation between non-lame and lame horses, comparing it with both six, uh, seven and nine. And we were able to demonstrate, as in our previous studies, that eight was the best differentiator. We then used what are called Kappa statistics, which compare the correctness of all assessors' um, observations. And this is a pretty tough test because if you're applying 24 behaviours and you've got 10 observers plus a trained assessor, if there was 100% agreement, then you would have a Kappa statistic of one. But just by the application of 24 behaviours and 11 people, you wouldn't expect to get complete agreement. It's highly likely that the agreement would be considerably less than that because to get 100% agreement for that many behaviours amongst that many observers is extremely challenging. But we were able to say that um, the scores, the behaviour scores, before and after analgesia were substantially reduced after analgesia for both the trained and the non-trained assessors. So although the Kappa statistics did not have high values, there was absolutely no doubt that by application of the ethogram alone, 
the non-trained assessors were able to differentiate between the horses before and after the nerve loss. That, that, that's, um, that's fantastic. Um, did the um, behaviour scores always go down after diagnostic analgesia in the horse? Did, did, you know, did each individual behaviour score always go down for that horse? Um, with the exception of one behaviour, yes, they always did. The one behaviour in which there was a slight increase in the behaviour was the front of the head being behind the vertical. And we have observed that some horses that start by their head being way above the vertical position uh, finish up being slightly overbent. So the number of horses with slight overbending increased a little all the other behaviour scores were substantially reduced. Any, any ideas or suggestions why that might be the case, Sue? In terms of the horse going slightly behind the vertical, I think it's just the position that they find it most comfortable. And I think it's been a common observation from myself. Whereas um, if the horse's head becomes much further behind the vertical, that is normally an adaptation to so just slightly behind the vertical, I think we can see, we see this in, in clinically normal horses. So if you look at, um, I've said before, that many normal horses have a pain score of two. The most common feature of that two would be the head, front of the head being slightly behind the vertical position. Mm -hmm. um, does that mean that there's parts of the ethogram which are... I'm not sure if that's the correct word, but more repeatable or more reliable um, than others? No, I don't think so, because we've done a number of different studies now. And assuming that the assessors have training, because we know that training in the interpretation of the ethogram improves performance, once people have had training, assuming that they look carefully, then all of the behaviours are relatively easy to identify. That, 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 that leads me on to my, the next thing I was going to ask you was, um, so there was little to no agreement between the trained and untrained observers after the horses were, were blocked. Would that be because, and, and the, as you've just said, um, do you think that, that training would be required um, to, to be able to use this ethogram effectively? I think one has to take into account the fact that despite the fact that there wasn't precise agreement between the behaviours exhibited between the trained and the non-trained assessor, nonetheless, the trained, the non-trained assessors could differentiate between the horses when they were lame and when they were not lame. We sure, sure. certainly know that training can improve because the next phase of the study, we took um, 10 veterinarians and provided them with training um, and then provided them with feedback on their performance subsequently. And they unquestionably improved in their performance. That, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and that's not something which was actually in the paper, I don't think. Um, maybe we should say just for, for our listener that um, the... Am I correct in saying, Sue, so that the trained observer was 
someone who helped develop the ethogram and the untrained observers, there were 10 of them, um, and they ranged from equine veterinary technicians to one five-year qualified vet. And the five-year qualified vet was the closest in agreement to the, the trained observer. Was that right? That, that's correct. And I think it's important to recognise that that clinician who had been uh, qualified for five years was somebody who was used to evaluating ridden horses. And I think that um, it takes a little bit of um, practice to evaluate ridden horses and look at everything. Uh, so I think it's important that people take time to look at both normal horses and lame horses. And then once you start to think about what you're looking at, it becomes obvious. So that, I think that that, that really um, substantiates the suggestion that this ethogram would be an effective tool for, for vets to be able to use in practice. Um, and I wonder, th this paper um, was based on equine athletes whose raison d'etre was the Olympic um, equestrian disciplines. H how modifiable would this be to horses involved in other forms of equestrianism? I think it is uh, highly applicable to all horses. Um, we use it on a daily basis. Um, I use it in pre-purchase examination situations as well as when I'm looking at lame horses. Uh, I think that, um, for example, you take a reining horse. The reining horses are trained to have a rather low head and neck position with their noses in front of the vertical position. But our definition of being above the bit is with the front of the head more than 30 degrees in front of the vertical position, which is a greater degree of um, being above the bit than a reining horse. So it's applicable to a reining um, I think that um, although when jumping, some horses raise their head positions on the approach to the fence, um, with that exception, the, the ethogram would be directly applicable. Um, we've looked at some endurance horses, and I think that in the vast majority of the disciplines, we can apply this. Mm, I, I can I can imagine that with the with the jumping horse eye, and I think yeah, as you say, if you with with exception of that, then yes, I, I can I can see how this could work. So, in summary, Sue, um, for an equine practitioner like me uh, at the at the coal face and and doing pre-purchase examinations and such like, um, what what do you think likes of me should take away from this paper? Well. I very strongly believe that this is a very powerful tool to differentiate between non-lame and lame horses. And I think historically the equine industry has accepted that there are horses that are not very willing, they're always grumpy horses, and I don't think that's the case. I think these horses that are unwilling, grumpy, generally are like that because they have underlying muscularity. I did a purchase examination on Tuesday for a horse which the purchaser said her only reservation was that the horse wasn't as forward going as she, was like, as she would like. That horse showed 10 of the 24 behavioural marks. And as a, on the basis of that, together with some other clinical observations, I recommended they should not buy this horse. That's how powerful I feel that the tool is. 
And when you're faced with the uh, horse that so often occurs, um, the horse which the owner says, this horse has changed when I, I, I ride it. It used to be more willing, but you can't see any lameness. If it shows age or more behavioral signs, then it is highly likely to have musculoskeletal pain, despite the fact that you can't see overt lameness. But I couldn't agree more with that, Sue. And I think that um, as vets, we love to have things proven to us. And, and as diagnostic imaging becomes increasingly more advanced, I think that, as you say, the previous acceptance or that that's how the horse goes, um, we can we can probably prove that it that it's because of a reason, not just because that's how it is, and 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 yeah, I think I I think that this ethogram is something which I would use uh, as you've just described it in pre-purchase examinations, and it would be of, of great use. Um, thank you very much, Sue, for answering answering our questions today, and just to close, uh, everyone loves a legacy. And I was at Beaver Congress last year and there was a lot of talk about why people love being an equine vet. Uh, and I never I never heard yours. So please, could you tell us what you love most about being an equine vet? Well, I think it's a constant challenge and I enjoy a challenge. I've always worked around horses. I've been a rider um, and I always want to try and improve the lot of the horse. Uh, and I think that we have that opportunity by being an equine vet and we never stop learning. I've been doing this job a long, long time and I'm still learning and that's a fantastic thing to be able to say after so many years. Sue Dyson, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Eve Podcast. I'm your host, Alice Brown. Today I'm going to be talking to Steve Purdy about his recent paper titled Small Herd Behaviour in Domestic Donkeys. Steve's been working as a vet with donkeys since 1993, predominantly researching reproduction and reproductive behaviour. He currently works teaching pre-vet and vet students for the Nanyar Project in Massachusetts and runs a small herd of donkeys to teach husbandry and reproduction. Uh, Steve, I think that like me, a lot of the people listening to this will be far more used to dealing with horses than donkeys. Um, and I know that group behaviour and herd hierarchy is very important in donkeys. Could you just start by providing us with a bit of an outline of the sort of behaviours that we see in groups of domestic donkeys um, and how this might differ to donkeys in the wild? Uh, yes, I'd be happy to. So I started with absolutely no experience with donkeys at all, and it took me a while to get used to them. And uh, one of the things as far as us interacting with them is donkeys never like to hurry. So there's no point in trying to hurry a donkey, and uh, it just doesn't work. And what I notice with them, if you sit back and watch them, they don't hurry very much amongst themselves. And they certainly, uh, you know, don't react to us that way either. And they have this reputation of being stubborn. And I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think they're thinkers. Um, they're very uh, strong thinkers and they like to look things over and before they decide to do things. Um, so... I got quite interested in them when I first started working with them because I came with a horse background thinking, oh, if I just treat them like horses and um, and if I'm a little stern with them, they'll probably react well to that. And that doesn't work out very well with donkeys at all. Uh, I find it's better to be just really gentle and quiet around them. And, and that once I earn their trust, I mean, I have it. And if I violate that trust by being rough or 
being loud, um, they just do not forget that. I've seen people interact with them that way and have that happen. And if you watch them in a herd situation, I have a small herd. Um, I, right now I have seven, a group of seven with females and one foal and another group of two that's males, one jack and one gelding. Um, they have some interesting interactions too. They form strong friendships. Uh, I don't think you could ever keep a donkey alone. It would just be cruel, really. And um, there's some pairs I have. I have some mother-daughter pairs and some other friend pairs, and I could never think about interrupting those pairs, about moving one of those animals. The, the other animal, I'm, I'm sure, would take it really, really badly. So those are some of the things I've observed um, in my um, just keeping donkeys, taking care of them, and also teaching with them. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does sound like sort of pair bonding is far more sort of predominant in, in donkeys than it is in, in horses, isn't it? Um, but as I say, it sort of leads me on nicely to, to mares and foals as well, because you mentioned that you have got some mares and, and recent foals. Right. Um, again, in horses, we're sort of used to managing mares with foals kind of quite separately from the rest of the herd. Um, I was kind of thinking, how do they um, interact within the herd? So how do donkey mares with foals fit in with the herd? And what happens at weaning time? Well, I've observed a couple of things that were different. Um, when uh, donkeys foal, um, they really separate themselves from the rest of the herd, even animals they've been good friends with. And especially on the day of birth, they don't want anybody else around that foal. So I've had the experience... Uh, um, several years ago of a, um, a mare foaling and it was a rainy morning when I went out to the barn and um, I didn't see her. She, They had free reign to go in and out if they wanted to. But And I looked up in the corner of the pasture and she was standing there in the pouring rain with a foal. She didn't want to bring it in. So I had to go up and pick the foal up and bring it down into the barn and she followed me in. That was an issue, but she didn't want anybody else near it um, at all. So they need some time to kind of discipline other animals. They're very prote extremely protective um, of their foals. Um, so th that's certainly one thing I've noticed. As far as weaning goes, I've had, um, this is a second jack foal, second male foal I've had. And I've had, I think six other, six or seven other female foals. Some of them were, the, the mares belong to other people, but, um, and what I've done as far as weaning goes is I haven't weaned any of the females at all. They, they pretty much will self-wean somewhere around five to seven months of age. And the foals I find in general are fairly independent, although one of my pairs, the, the, the younger, the daughter is really tightly bound to her mother. Um, and um, the males have to be moved. So they start acting stutters. They'll show things like phlegm and reaction in, at two weeks of age. I, the foal I have right now is, I think, seven weeks old, and he will mount um, genets and heat, full-grown genets and heat. We had two genets and heat recently. So, And they discipline him and let him know it's not okay. But he was interested in that right away. So he's going to be bigger than some of these he's with, so he's going to have to be moved someplace else. And I'm planning on doing that when he's around seven to eight months of age. Okay, I so think I, that's a decent age. 
Yeah, so I guess you, you are managing them in a, in a similar way to, to how we are with horses, really, aren't you? Um, and yeah. you are still having to separate them off, and, and we can't kind of see the true wild behaviour in these sort of smaller domestic herds. No, I don't really know what it is. I wish I knew more about it, because I think it has a lot of application to how we should handle them, you know, when we have them in a domestic situation. Yeah, absolutely. I can kind of see that. Um Donkeys are known for being quite stoical, um, and I'm sort of thinking from a clinician's point of view, what sort of behavioural signs might we see to indicate pain and stress? Well, they, they're extremely stoic, like you mentioned, and um, I think the, the kinds of things I see is one might be refusal to move. Uh, another thing I've seen in donkeys that are scared is they get immediately get diarrhoea. I mean... Um, propulsive diarrhea coming out the back end. So if you really frighten them, that might be one of the reactions okay. you would see, um, and which is kind of unusual. Yeah. Um, but they tend to, I mean, I've certainly had them run away. I'm, I'm not saying they won't run away. They certainly will. And if you try to rush them, their usual thing is to just freeze in place. And if they get frightened, they will run. And they're liable to kick when they take off to kick backwards. So I've been fortunate with the groups I've had, with the animals I've had, that some have kicked out when they went away, But and, and I could have been hit, or as could have students, but that isn't really, I think, what they had in mind. They just were expressing displeasure when they took off. Um, things like colic, for example. I feel like if a donkey shows signs of abdominal pain, it's severely affected. I haven't seen a lot of colic in donkeys, and I think that has to do with their stoic temperament also. Um, people have told me that donkeys that get laminitis are, uh, are extremely stoic, and they may be not walking very well at all, but they won't show a big, strong reaction to hoof tester pressure. Um, so I, I don't have personal experience with that. Um, so I can only repeat what other people have told me. So. I feel like a donkey that won't eat, they're highly food motivated. And a donkey that won't eat is a sick donkey. And a donkey that won't eat and won't get up is a very sick donkey. So I would not just say, oh, he just doesn't feel good today. I think somebody that's not eating deserves to be investigated that day for sure. Okay, absolutely. So we, we kind of want to take these signs a lot a lot more seriously or look at them a lot earlier than we do in horses, really, then, yes. don't we? And, and you might not see a strong elevation in pulse rate either with pain, like you typically would see in a horse, or the donkey's pulse could be high and he's not showing a lot of pain symptoms on the outside. Um, uh, okay, so that's perhaps a more reliable indicator then? Yes. Okay, brilliant. Um, do you notice the difference between sort of animals that are that are lower in the hierarchy? Are they showing less, less symptoms further, or is, is it, again, they're just very stoical all around? They seem to be pretty. Uh, they seem pretty consistent to me. I don't have none of the animals I've been associated with. It's, it's a small number, but I haven't thought of anyone. I thought, gee, that one's really temperamental or has a low pain threshold. I, I've never felt that about any of the donkeys I've been associated with, and I certainly have seen that with horses. That some seem to have a much, you know, lower pain tolerance than others, um, and so I, I guess I haven't seen that. Not not so far. Okay, no, okay. Um, just moving on, um, in the same edition of Eve, um, Braymont and colleagues published a case report titled um, Mutually 
induced traumatic alopecia responses to husbandry modification in two cohabiting donkeys. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about this and just sort of are stereotypical behaviours common in domestic donkeys? I, I certainly have seen stereotypical behaviours and the kinds of things I've seen um, are weaving back and forth, um, uh, pressing the, the lips against inanimate objects like um, um, stalls, sides of the barn, things like that. Um, the, the most common animal I've seen that with is my jack, the jack I've had now for about 12 years. And um, I see most of that behavior when there are genets and heat on the farm or if he's involved, actively involved in breeding. So those things are certainly obvious to me. Um, they do self-groom, and I find that, you know, each other. They'll stand head to tail, groom each other. Um, the paper that you reference, um, there was quite a lot of hair loss associated with that. So it seems like some animals might take that to extreme. I haven't personally seen that. And because they're unhappy with their environment or bored, donkeys get bored very easily, I find, because they are highly intelligent, then a kind of behavior that wouldn't amount to anything, wouldn't be pathological, can end up in a problem like the paper represents. Um, and when they separated the animals, the hair loss uh, stopped. So um, typically you'd expect, well, maybe the donkeys were happier apart but I think their environment is what caused them to start the behavior. And I also find that donkeys will, when this is not you know, only donkeys, but they certainly will mimic behavior of others. Um, so if somebody starts doing something, others may start the same thing. It's certainly not 100%, but it could happen. But yes, certainly sort of learned behaviors. Correct, um, yes. What uh, welfare considerations can we take away regarding the management of domestic donkeys then? Well, one of the things, you know, I always say this to students and new people around them is don't frighten the donkeys. And fast movements, um, loud noises, trying to run at them to make them go places, all these things are frightening to them and they don't respond well to them. So you're better off with new animals just going out there and standing there or sitting down on a chair and wait for them to come to you. And I typically find with some new, new donkeys, some that I've had over the years is, at first I had one that was totally frightened of everyone. Anyone went into the barn, she'd run out immediately. And our approach was to, to pretty much ignore her and just be around her and feed her so that she kind of overcame what I assume was bad treatment somewhere else. And she became much, much easier to deal with. We just went very slow with her. Of all the donkeys I have, I still have her. She's the one I feel like that if, if she doesn't want to do something, which she makes it obvious um, by her just by her gestures, then I'm not going to force her into a corner and make her do it. I just say to everyone, back off, give her some more time. Let's do something else for a few minutes or just stand around there and then approach her slowly. So the, the whole thing of hurrying them, as I mentioned before, doesn't work well. They don't respond well to it. Oftentimes they freeze in place. Um, and all the pulling and pushing with brooms or anything else doesn't get anything to happen except you get tired out. I think sometimes I've seen people with smaller donkeys with the minis 
you know, tend to lift them up or push them. And I don't think that's a good behavior to adopt with them either. Uh, I think just because they're small, they shouldn't be shoved around. Um, they need the same kind of careful and quiet behavior um, to be successful and for them to have a happier life. So those are the main things, I believe. Okay, brilliant. And in terms of sort of environmental enrichment and kind of preventing boredom, um, is there anything specifically with donkeys um, for that? Well, the winter time is the time I see most of that. They start chewing my barn inside. So we've done things like get these play balls that you buy for horses. Some donkeys seem to be afraid of them. They don't like them at all. Uh, others like them. Uh, I see in the Donkey Sanctuary's website, they put boots out with their donkeys in the pastures and um, old boots, and they pick them up and run around with them and play. So um, I try to get... I want them out every day. So I want them to get outside. I don't like them locked in stalls. If the weather's particularly bad, very cold, say freezing rain, then that's not a day I'm going to put them out in it. But other than that, even if it's just cold, um, I, I have it set up so they can go in and out as they please. And I think that works out a lot better than saying, oh, it's really cold out. I'm going to lock everybody in. In a really cold day, I would do that, but I wouldn't do that for long periods of time because then I think they start that kind of destructive behavior. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of uh, sort of further research into donkey behavior, um, what, what would you like to see? I'd like to know more about how they interact with each other in the wild. I've only heard about it. I wish I had the opportunity to, to observe it firsthand or, or certainly speak to someone who has. I've talked to, I think, one person, that's it, unfortunately, but that's the only person I've met about it. But I, I find them quite interesting. So I think that would be certainly useful um, to try to understand some of their behavior. And we're not keeping them in wild herds, certainly the way a wild herd might be from what I know of it anyway. So we have to make accommodations to, to account for that so that I think overall you're going to get a happier and and more well-balanced animal if you know the underlying behavior and how they interact and, and see the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that's great. Thank you very much. I think that brings us to the end of this edition of the podcast. So thank you very much, Steve, for talking to me. You're very welcome. I'm happy to talk donkeys with anybody, anytime. <laughs> and I always tell people, I'll finish with this, if you're having a bad day, go spend some time with a donkey. You're going to feel better. I guarantee it. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash eve. <laughs>